One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're sort of living through an era of intimate isolation. But mentally, technology is allowing us to share our ideas and thoughts in a much richer and deeper way than perhaps we were doing even when we were given physical freedoms to move around. It really is rewiring communities again. Well, we've all been pushed around. Hello and welcome to It's Complicated, the podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. I'm Tanya Goodin, and each week I'll be talking to my guests about how they manage the relationship with the tiny tyrant in their pocket. We'll be talking about how our phone habits affect our work, our lives and our loves and about what our relationship with our phone might just tell us about our relationship with ourselves. If you want help and you want hope, you've come to the right place. This is It's Complicated. This episode of It's Complicated was the first recorded fully in lockdown in the UK and I was really delighted to be talking to Tom Watson, ex-deputy leader of the Labour Party in the UK from 2015 to 2019 and Shadow Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Also the author of Downsizing, the story of his health journey of losing eight and a half stone and reversing his type 2 diabetes and in fact on the day that I recorded it he was announced as the new chairman of UK Music. So we had a really wide-ranging conversation given Tom's background and given the environment that we all find ourselves in at the moment. Obviously we touched on a lot about our relationship with technology and how that's changed as a result of being in lockdown but he had some really interesting things to say about what might happen to our relationship now with tech as we go through this experience of being kind of physically distanced from each other, but actually using technology more and more to connect and to learn and to build communities at a distance. And he was very amusing um, on his theory that the main people doing PE with Joe Wicks at nine o'clock in the morning are actually, in fact, all the adults in the UK and not any of the school children. Anyway, I will leave you uh, to enjoy our conversation. So, Tom, welcome to It's Complicated. Thank you. It's good to be on. Um, We're recording in very strange times, aren't we? We're we're both, uh, well, the whole country's on lockdown. I'm in London. You're in Yorkshire, I think. Are you Yorkshire? I'm in Worcestershire. Worcestershire, Worcestershire. yeah. Yeah. And we are, you know, this whole period of, you know, the lockdown and the, the pandemic is 
undoubtedly going to change our relationship with tech, which is what the podcast is all about. But I wanted to start a little bit talking about your personal relationship with technology. And I was listening to you recently explaining that when you first became deputy leader of the Labour Party, you said you wanted to move the party from being an analogue party to a digital party so that people could consume the party on their phones. But I wondered about the price MPs themselves are increasingly paying for that digital relationship. Um, You said uh, a couple of quotes I've seen from you in interviews that there's absolutely no off switch as an MP. You're getting WhatsApp in the middle of the night. Labour's overnight media briefing, you said in your book, reached your phone between 4 and 6am and you're expected to, to read it by breakfast. You've got a million things coming at you constantly. So just kind of talk us through what your relationship with tech was like when you were an MP, because it sounds pretty hectic from the way you've described it. Yeah. Uh, and it's really interesting, actually, because actually it's only sort of on reflection uh, and essentially establishing myself uh, in the commercial world as a, as a freelancer that I've actually had time to think about the reservoir of information that we all swim in and how you create proper workflow. And it's a problem for MPs because I, I don't think they have time to think about it. But for me, the first job I ever had was as a training library assistant in the Labour Party library. And I was appointed in November 1984. And I had to do Neil Kinnock's press clippings, which required me to cut all the newspapers apart, paste them up with copy decks, put them on a photocopier, print off multiple copies, staple them together, send them over to a van. And if Neil Kinnock was lucky, he would get his press clipping service just at lunchtime in time for his cheese sandwich. When I became deputy leader, the overnight media brief was emailed to me at 5am in the morning. Mm. Uh, And I would invariably open my eyes, lean over to my phone. And that would be the first thing I read in the day, because that would tell me whether I was going to have a bad day at the office or a good day at the office. Yeah. And it's only on reflection I've realised how corrosive and exhausting that kind of world is. And then if you overlay obsessive social media activity and constant access to your sort of emotional, political, spiritual, mental bandwidth that people have, it was very difficult. Although I did manage my social media assets very differently at the end of my time in Parliament. Um, so, and I think, I I think maybe MPs are probably just, uh, you know, an extreme version of what we're all going through in our lives, which is, um, you know, now that we're in the world of information abundance, how do we choose what information to alight on and process and think about and organize? And I've put a lot of time since leaving Parliament into, into doing that in my own, in my own life. It does seem particularly stressful for MPs, doesn't it? I mean, I was really struck when at the end of the last parliament, so many MPs said they wouldn't be standing again. And a lot of them, quite a lot of the female MPs cited the kind of abuse that they were getting regularly on social media, the abuse and threats. And, you know, you've said, I think you said the brutality and the hostility was day to day, and you were dealing with pylons on social media. I mean, how how do you deal with that? How do you juggle that and the constant, you know, WhatsApp connection with the rest of the party and the, you know, trying to do your job? Well, for me, I set kind of rules of engagement, really. I I mean, firstly, 
what I went through, although there were, you know, in some cases, death threats that required the police to be involved or to at least to investigate, what I went through was nothing compared to the misogynistic hate that many of my female colleagues went through. Mm. And if they happened to be Jewish as well, it was intolerable. But, you know, in the end, I just had little rules like, you know, if people swore, I would just block them because I just thought, you know, nothing personal to you, mate, but there's many thousands of other people who are trying to get my time. And if you want to be rude on social media, the cumulative effect of many thousands of people wanting to be rude on social media meant that I would never get any work done. So by the end of it, I'd I'd got about 5,000 accounts (laughs) that I'd got on Twitter. uh, And so I never saw it. And I felt a lot better on the back of it. And, you know, actually the other day I was looking at some of them. Most of those are kind of sock puppets or troll accounts. There's very few. They don't have names on them, do they, any of them? They're all anonymous. Yeah. And the difficulty is I think MPs, they're not not innate digital users very often, a lot of the older ones in particular. So – they don't quite understand all of that stuff. And then so they don't put in systems to just sort of protect their time and protect where they can focus their attention. And so one persistent or vexatious tweeter can can distract an MP for quite a long period of time unless they put in systems to sort of, you know, avoid those kind of conversations. And And do MPs get help with that? I mean, you know, how much kind of assistance is given to MPs in in dealing with that kind of abuse uh, or attack on social media? I think it's getting better. I mean, certainly the since we lost my dear friend Joe, the security apparatus of Parliament was increased. So sort of, you know, physical threats online are now monitored and, you know, the police do follow up. I'm not so sure whether there needs to be more work on digital training. The political parties... I mean, my own party, though we did try, we, we got a social media code of conduct. I wanted to get that through when I was deputy leader, social media code of conduct in our rule book. I'm not sure if we necessarily gave us the support my parliamentary colleagues required to to just understand how best to deal with trolling and issues like that. Um, although there was a lot of self-help groups established within the parliamentary party, it wasn't routine. You've talked also about the problems, I mean, you know, we've all talked about it, haven't we, since the election of echo chambers and the fact that, you know, if you're a, an activist or a journalist, your world is Twitter, but there are millions of people out there outside London who aren't on Twitter and that that potentially created some of the problems around the election. Talk us a bit more through about your kind of thoughts on that. Well, Twitter, you, you know, you, you decide your own Twitter feed. I think this is probably more acute on the left, but it sure happens on the right as well, I'm sure. But on the left, which is very stratified, very sort of culturally nuanced between each little faction and group, there's a sort of self-selecting elitism on the hard left where, you know, you're either in or you're out. It's a very binary world of good and evil for mm on the hard left politics and so there were these sort of validating loops uh where you know you were either in or you were out and living in that binary world uh i mean it's not sustainable spiritually is it i don't think certainly for people with independent thought and you would want in politics i think you want people who can independently think uh so so in the end it was quite corrosive and banal 
Uh, and, um, you know, I might be wrong, but I think there were a lot of people on the hard left who genuinely believed Labour was going to have a landslide in yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so do you think it's tougher now being an MP than it was 30, 40 years ago because of having to deal with this extra dimension? You know, the kind of trolling, the abuse, the, you know, relying on your messages from your electorate from, you know, social media and them not being representative. Do you think that it's a harder job or just a different job? No, it's a different job. I mean, no, you know, I mean, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm in some ways Luddite about technology. because uh, I know I'm you're not. not. <laughs> um, I, 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 it, but it has different challenges. It requires MPs to sort of organise their... Their sort of parliamentary realm a bit differently, I think, and 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 to marshal their assets differently. So, for example, when they're helping their constituents, a lot of MPs get casework through Facebook now, uh, and that's very hard to manage in terms of process because you know a comment on a Facebook site can't easily be channeled to a caseworker who can set up a file to do GDPR compliant and do all the mm. advocacy requirements. Um, so there's sort of messy processes that haven't quite been resolved um, yet, and, and and this again, this will be in every area of life. But it does mean that an MP is closer to their constituency and can sort of feel the pulse of their community more quickly, and if they want to, respond more rapidly to events. Yeah, and I think you yourself have said that you know if you're setting up any kind of community group or, or group for you know change it's so fast now isn't it because of social media you know we can yeah. we can mobilize people and communicate with people in a way that we just couldn't do well here's the amazing thing at the moment and this is why i think this is a real juxtaposition i mean we are all in prison in some kind of way at the moment aren't we we're mm. on physical lockdown we're only allowed to leave our homes to buy bread or exercise and here we are in you know, geographically locked down, but our minds are expanding through technology. And so, you know, it took a lockdown for me to do a Joe Wicks exercise video with my 11 year old who's currently with New Yorkshire. Um, and there's a richer dad daughter experience as a result of it. My, my very close friends, you know, we're on WhatsApp groups um, talking about how we're dealing with not being able to go to the gym or what books we're reading or how we're organising our day. I'm a member of Bugley's COVID-19 community support group, which which was a group that's set up, you know, within hours. And, you know, there's conversations going on about how we look after our old folk who can't get out of the house. So I've described it as we're sort of living through an era, era of intimate isolation in that we're kind of physically impeded but mentally technology is allowing us to sort of share our ideas and thoughts in a much richer and deeper way than perhaps we were doing even when we were given physical freedoms to move around yeah i think one of the positives that might come out of it is that re-emergence of community because i mean i've found that in my kind of little part of london where you know we've mobilized neighbors via whatsapp groups and you know sharing information and these are people I've lived alongside for 15 years and hardly spoken to before because it's London. And I think, you know, that's one of the nice things that's come out of it. And as you say, they're entirely enabled via technology. 
One of the things I wanted to do when I stood down is digital. One of the many things I wanted to do and never achieved. I was digital engagement minister in 2008 under Gordon Brown. And I just had this idea that we should, we needed a thing, you, you would almost call it the Know Your Neighbour Foundation. Because, you know, in cities, if you move next door to someone, you know, you bump into them. And unless you catch their first name in the first or second encounter, you're always too embarrassed to yeah, stop them. To ask, yeah, yeah. You know, if you had a sort of, you know, street level, I mean, it was, it was, there was a dap that did it up my street, but it was a bit ahead of itself. That kind of micro level community networking really works. And I, I think this might lead to a resurgence in that. Yeah, uh, I agree. Yeah. Uh, and that's only a good thing because mm. it, it really is rewiring communities again. So you mentioned a little bit earlier about exercise and Joe Wicks. Um, yeah. I want to talk about downsizing. It's a good segue okay. into downsizing because it is, I have to say, a fantastic read. I was actually away with a group of friends at the end of January and everyone was reading your book. Um, is that right? Yeah, so everyone had got it and everyone was reading and talking about it. So one of the ironies of the current situation is, of course, we're all following public health guidelines at the moment yeah. about self-isolating and uh, social distancing. And you very notably did not follow public health guidelines with your eating plan with your new book. You didn't follow the NHS Eat Well Guide and you lost eight stone and reversed your type 2 diabetes. So tell us yeah, well, why you didn't you didn't follow the public health guidelines. Well, first of all, let me say I am public I am following public health guidelines guidelines when it comes to social distancing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean I very consciously after many months really of reading, um, decided that one-size-fits-all nutritional advice couldn't possibly apply to everyone, could, couldn't apply anymore. Mm. And there were just some people for whom the um, recommended amount of carbohydrates were too much for their physiology. When I read the science behind it, I decided to go on a nutritional program that significantly reduced the amount of starchy carbs in my diet and, and sort of high fructose fruits like bananas. Uh, which is slightly more controversial. Did you cut them um, out altogether? That wasn't when I was reading the book. I wasn't sure whether you you just you have no starchy carbs now, or whether you're very limited. When I when I first started on my health journey, I was incredibly disciplined and only took in twenty grams of carbs a day, net carbs a day. And by net carbs, I mean the amount of total carbs in a product. I, I did a lot of barcodes. My fitness app was very, very yeah, helpful for that. That's great. I know point. I use that. Yeah, and I took the total amount of carbs less the fibre as the level. So the net carbs. These days, I would say I I take in slightly more carbs, less measured, in a more sort of Mediterranean style diet. But that means that I very, very, very rarely have rice, potatoes or sort of dried pasta. I get my carbs from other sources like um, cauliflower rice. I've never eaten as much broccoli uh, as I have. <laughs> uh, uh, and, 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 and sort of items like that. And I find that that works much better for me. Although I occasionally 
pinch my kids' chips or have a little pick at someone's um, carbs, but I, I, I still never touch confectionery or anything with refined sugar in it. So why, I mean, I appreciate what you say that we we can't have one size fits all, but why are the guidelines, why do they seem so out of sync? Because, you know, there are lots of people writing about this, you know, excess carb diet, excess sugar. Why have the NHS, and I don't want, I don't want to knock the NHS because they're doing such a brilliant job for us right yeah. now, but why are our guidelines supposedly so out of sync with actually what we should be doing it's it's not directly nhs it's public health england and they say they have to go off the best advice available the diet they give gives you a balanced nutritional plate and they subscribe to this notion that all calories are equal (coughs) but but for me i don't buy that a calorie of refined sugar is very different to a calorie of, you know, grass-fed butter to me. And therefore, what you put in yourself is really important. And um, I just found my body felt less inflamed, less under pressure. And it happened to me quite quickly. Uh, you know, after, after a sort of week of probably what I now would describe as sugar craving and withdrawal, I just started to feel more at ease with myself is the best way I can describe mm. it. And that's not really stopped since that point. And for me, what what I got very quickly was a sort of a sharpened sort of mental acuity. I, I just felt like a fog in my brain had lifted. And if I do slightly overdo it, I end up eating too many carbs. I find the brain fog descends again. And I don't, I don't want to lose the sort of sharpness and clarity of thought that I've got. Um, as a result of changing my diet so i mean that but that's just me and and the one thing i'm very clear about in the book is i don't want to tell people what to do with their diets you've got to find what works for you but i did feel that i should tell my story because i was sort of in the sphere that made public policy and I'd, i'd i'd sort of broken the rules and i thought that was interesting planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What's the impact now for all of us in being in this lockdown situation and how's it affecting you? Because I'm seeing a lot of stuff online about people saying they're drinking too much, Uh they're, you know, comfort eating cake. (laughs) Um, You know, people, if you're self-isolating, they're not getting outside to exercise. How are you keeping on track? Okay, well, on the the good side, um, there's obviously... And I think this probably counts for all of us. There is more time at home for us to plan and prepare real food rather than processed food. So I, I just eat, I, I don't eat microwave meals now. But I mean, this weekend, all right, and it, it cost a bit of money. But I made a beef wellington this weekend, which which is a ridiculous extravagance, even when you're eating real food. Uh, it takes a long time. But I think it does give people an opportunity to you know, think about how they can cook in their own homes. Yeah. Better and real food. The downside for me, I mean, I had the first couple of weeks, my daily activities just collapsed uh, to the point where I was probably for the first time since I got healthy was beginning to slightly panic that I was losing control of my activity levels. But I've sorted that now by slightly obsessively implementing a new routine and what that is, is a little, very slow, very mild run, three or four times a week between four and eight kilometers. Uh, and when I say slow, I mean, you know, if you were walking fast to the bank or the shop, it would take me a bit of time to overtake you. I'm not talking about sprinting. I'm talking about really slow jogging. And I stick my headphones on and I do that for 40 minutes to an hour and it feels great. Where I got really stuck was... If you're stuck in the house, I, I, I was on 12,500 steps a day, aspiring to, always over 10, always trying to get to 12,500. And you just can't do yeah, that. Yeah, how could you? Do, I've been obsessing about my step counter thinking it's so low now. Yeah. So, well, what I've done, and this is where I'm going to sound like a crank, I've got an old iPhone, and between 8 in the morning and 8 at night, I've set it to go off to play me a Bob Marley song every hour. <laughs> Which Bob Marley song? It's it's all the tracks on Exodus. Right, uh, brilliant. <laughs> and there's a few repeats on there. But when that goes off, it's my trigger to do 10 star jumps, 10 press-ups, and 10 standing squats every oh hour. Oh, my God, every hour. Oh. And, it, and it, takes, it only takes 90 seconds. Yeah. But it, it just... It keeps your metabolism ticking over at a slightly faster rate. And what I've noticed, having done this for nearly a week now, I'm beginning to just sort of play with it a bit. So like, I just before I came on the call to you, I did 
a side plank for 30 seconds on each side, just adding to it. And now that I've got a kind of nearly a fully formed habit of doing those three core things every hour, I could sort of play with it a bit more. And, and it's, I, I, it's, you know, I woke up this morning with a spring in my step, ready to do it, and it felt great. And are you still doing that, PE with Joe every morning? Do you do that? I'm not, I'm not doing it every morning. If I can persuade the numerous children for whom I have any influence over to do to it, do with, it me, with you, <laughs> uh, I'll do it. But that's getting harder the more we're on lockdown. So I've got this theory that there aren't actually any children here. <laughs> it's just all adults. <laughs> a whole load of adults who think they should be doing it. <laughs> So just going back to, to talking about food and the kind of food equation um, in downsizing, you talk a lot about big sugar and the power the sugar lobby has over the food industry and you know processed food and everything we eat. You are yeah. very well known as a campaigner. How are you going to take your campaigning background and, and sort out big sugar? What, what's your plan? Yeah. For that. Well, I, I, ha- I haven't got a fully formed plan yet, but the one thing that's really interesting in the early days of this, um, of this virus, there seems to be a lot of research coming out. That's you, you know, if you look at mortality rates, it's suggesting there's an emerging correlation. That's all I'm going to say now because I don't think it's all proven yet between people with health conditions related to obesity or metabolic syndrome disorders like type two diabetes and higher mortality rates. Mm. Uh, If when the inevitable Royal Commission or public inquiry that reviews our handling of the virus in slower time concludes that our physical health levels and obesity was related to this, then I think there is going to be the mother of all reckonings for a food production system that allows people to eat 50 kilograms of refined sugar in their diets every year. You know, that means that, we, you know, a third of kids are leaving primary school overweight or obese. That 40% of the sugar that our kids take comes from a fizzy pot like Coca-Cola. And then when you realise that one can of Coca-Cola has more refined sugar in it than the recommended daily allowance for an adult of sugar mm. alone, and that kids drink this stuff, you know, every day. Is there um, any evidence that the sugar tax has made any difference to kids' consumptions? I, I can't remember seeing anything written about think, that. Well, actually, uh, yeah, what it has done, it forced a lot of sugary drinks makers to reformulate the ingredients. Um, so Iron Brew and some of these big brands has just got less sugar in it. So actually, George Osborne, I mean, I think epidemiologically, George Osborne will be credited with saving hundreds, if not thousands of lives over time as a result of that levy alone. Mm. Uh, I think he will go down in history for doing it. I think he was a pioneer. There are jurisdictions around the world that are looking at Britain's sugar levy as a sort of exemplar. And when you realise how, how big the stakes are for some conglomerates on this when i was writing the book i had the really great honor and pleasure to meet an amazing woman called marian nestle who was actually surveilled by coca-cola because of because her writing was so controversial in the minds of the executives that run that company 
And Marion told me, she's a sort of New York octogenarian academic. She told me that Coca-Cola had spent an estimated $100 million on fighting campaigns to restrict the use of refined sugar in the food supply mm. in, uh, around the world. That's how big this, this is. And it may be, if some good is going to come from this coronavirus, that one of the things we look at at the end of it is the food we put in ourselves yeah. and, and, and what's sold to us in the supermarkets. So I, I do see a bit of a parallel between big sugar and big tech. Um, I, I was really struck when you wrote in your book about how one of the strategies for big sugar is putting the responsibility solely on the individual and saying, you know, it, you don't have to choose. You don't have to choose to eat all this sugary stuff. <laughs> um, you know, it's your willpower. It's your self-control. We just make it available. And I kind of see that happening. And also the resistance they show to the sugar tax and to other forms of restriction. And I do see the parallels with big tech and the resistance to any form of regulation and the issues around social media saying, you know, that we we need to take responsibility for, you know, curating our feed and dealing with trolls and, you know, managing the mental health issues. What's your feeling about that? Do you think I'm off the mark or do you think there are any? Uh, but a little bit different. I mean, certainly with, with sugar, they've known for 30 or 40 years that increased use of refined sugar increases your likelihood of many diseases like cardiovascular disease or cancer. In fact, there was a, a brilliant book written by John Yudkin in the early 70s called Pure White and Deadly. Mm, yeah, I've read that. Yeah. Well, he, he basically says in 1972, he said, if what we now know about sucrose when, when it was first invented, it would be a banned substance now. Mm. So these guys have been in denial for a long time about the impact of what they what they put in food. But they've kind of corrupted nutritional science in many senses. Uh, so much research is funded by them. And I'm not quite sure if that's the parallel with tech. I, I think I think tech has just had the big the big sort of tech firms, they've had exponential growth and they've not quite been it despite their lobby power, their culture has not allowed them to respond to public concern fast enough because there's huge change. Isn't yeah. And yet there are signs that they are beginning who respond to that. So, you know, we look at online harms in the UK. You know, the big tech firms are now more or less saying that they'll accept some form of regulatory oversight. Okay, they're now in the debate with the government over it, but they were in denial about it yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, this week, you could call it PR, but it's not a bad thing that Uber has donated 200,000 free journeys for NHS workers and all the things they're doing. And, you know, yes, there's challenges to how they treat their workers and, you know, what their tax regime is, but they recognise they have some form of social responsibility and public opinion matters. Uh, I'm not quite sure if the sugar industry has got there yet. I think they're just trying to masquerade what they're doing. You know, like when you buy a, a, a box of Frosties and it tell you, tells you it's got added vitamin, vitamin D, it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah, neglects it. to mention the 30 teaspoons of sugar. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, that's probably about as far as it goes, I would say, to the panel. So just going back to kind of the uh, the change you've made from, you know, being a, an MP and now your, your kind of new lifestyle, how has your relationship with your phone change throughout that. I, I was very struck by a 
passage in the book when you said your daughter used to mimic you holding your phone, <laughs> have kind of thumb and finger to her ear, because that's yeah. what she saw you doing all the time. So how has that changed um, since you've moved from, you know, being in Parliament to your new life? I think in the tail end of Parliament, I mean, it's a constant struggle to be in the moment, isn't it, to be present. And these days, I can go to bed and leave my phone charging downstairs in the kitchen most of the time. (laughs) There are still occasions where I just feel I need it with me for a bit of comfort in case I wake up in the middle of the night and want to read a media brief. Uh, But I don't do that. (laughs) I certainly... So, for example, my primary email account is no longer on my phone. So I'll I'll purposefully walk to my home office desk and, you know, do a batch of emails in one go rather than sort of respond to it every time. I use WhatsApp regularly still, but that's really in the days of lockdown to keep in touch with friends and family. Yeah. Uh, I do less sort of professional work in that medium. So I guess I've just sort of been slowly, slowly disconnecting from a from a sort of slightly beholden to tech world that I was in before. And only on reflection do I know that, I, I mean, even then I had choices, but it, it was just overwhelming back then and it was very hard to get, get through it. And have people around you noticed? Have they noticed your different relationship? It depends who they are. So I've, I've got loved ones who are still horrified at the amount of time I use tech uh, because they never really saw me when I was at SW1 where the phone would be basically, you know, used all the time. But yes, I think most people that know me are, are, are very pleasantly surprised that they can hold a conversation with me for more than 30 seconds without me staring <laughs> at the screen. And what about gaming? I mean, you're you're well known as a, a gamer. Do you, yeah. since you kind of, you know, you're focused on healthy lifestyle and exercise, do you do less gaming? Yeah, console gaming is what I had to go. So you've given and up I, that completely? I, on the console, I, I you're going to think I'm really cruel now, but I, I even had a little ceremony where <laughs> I gave formal ownership of the family PlayStation 4 to my 14-year-old Malachi, and it was like me giving him, you know, an ancient artefact that had been passed down <laughs> Uh, and and I, I still felt slightly lost, even knowing that he'd let me play it when I wanted. So I do still play the odd game now. I, I've got a few apps on my phone. I'll play backgammon regularly with myself. I go through phases on Clash of Clans and, and make the odd in-app purchase to give me the advantage over the teenagers in my life. <laughs> um, but that's about it now. I certainly don't play console games very much. And I am surrounded by a whole it's the play video games all the time and it it's 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 lovely to see them doing it but I don't feel the need to join in because you did write in your book I think it was right at the end you were talking about the fact that someone had told you that kids now spend less time outside than maximum security prisoners I think the quote yeah, was it was Andrew Denton of the Overseas Industry Association a, a brilliant man and he, it, he just gave me one of those facts. You see, I think, it was, I think the figure is actually it's like three quarters of yeah. kids spend less time outdoors than high security prisoners. What a tragedy that is! And, and so, I, I, with my own kids, I'm in a kind of a constant negotiation with them to try and get them to get outdoors. 
uh, and they live they they live at the bottom of a hill, and and as part of the one day you know the the, the one a day exercise routine, I'm trying to get them to run up the hill, and they've done it on the odd day, and then on the other days, they've not materialised, and we're having a, we're having a bad Joe Wicks week this week as well on the exercise, but it, you know that's that's constant family negotiations. Isn't it? There is, there is no doubt about it that one of the things that I want to try and do, I was trying to do it in the policy brief, was to develop a sort of outdoor recreation strategy. This, again, if we're sort of, if we move from total lockdown to limited lockdown, which seems to me that might be where government advice goes when we're through the worst of this. There might still be a requirement for distance from each other, even if we can go yeah, out more. Yeah. And the great outdoors is a beautiful way to regain our physical and mental health, isn't it? And there could be more in it for the, the outdoor sector, I think. And I'm thinking it may, again, talking about the positives, because I'm always trying to find some positives, is that it may make us appreciate more the outdoors and nature because we've been so restricted and particularly kids who've spent so much time on screens you know we may actually when we get to the end of this period may find that they are choosing to spend more time outdoors than they were before I mean who knows that may be a pipe dream I think think for kids it probably is a pipe dream but I I mean certainly part of my journey in the last few years that kind of mindfulness and being in the moment you know, I, I walk in wire forest regularly and, you know, that sort of just feeling of being at one with nature, which sounds a little bit hippie-ish to say, even using those words. They're very validating moments if you can get to that. I'd really like others to be able to experience those moments because they're joyful. Yeah, and we know there are huge benefits for mental health. And we know that when kids get outside, they experience all those benefits too so yeah i'm hoping i'm hoping that we may see that happen more i'm very aware that we're getting near the end of our time and i just have three questions tom that i always ask everybody to finish off so the first one is if you just had one message to say to everyone listening about their digital habits, about their phone habits, what would what would your message be? Try to establish a regular sleep routine with a screen downtime protocol. If you can get off your blue screens 90 minutes before your head hits the pillow, you'll thank me in three months' time. Yeah, you did talk a lot about sleep in your book, I remember. So is your sleep now good? Are you, you know, have you solved the sleep issue? Yeah. You know, I used to think there were like four pillars of health, which were nutrition, exercise, well-being and sleep. And I think there's three pillars of health and they're built on a foundation of sleep. Sleep. You should try and get yourself eight hours of sleep a night, which means blocking out all light, you know, trying to get a regular routine. And if you can get more than six hours, you've done well, yeah. mm. uh, especially if you live in a city. Screen down time is a really important part of that. Or, or get blue light blocking glasses, which um, I also wear when no one's looking because I look <laughs> like a doctor in the early 1990s when I wear them, or, or at least the glasses do. But I think that's really important because there's a lot of evidence to show the blue light from screens 
significantly reduces your melatonin levels yeah and, and, and disrupts sleep and the last statistics that we had for the for uk adults showed that we're spending we're all spending more time on screens than we are asleep so we've got yeah. to, we've got to get that balance back so have you got yeah. second question have you got a top tip you've just shared one so you're going to have to come up with another one now <laughs> uh, around getting a better balance around tech and digital what else is in your armory of habits okay here, here's one if you use your phone for podcasts it's harder to be distracted by other things on your phone so mm. listen to more on your iPhone uh, although obviously the first point I make about a screen downtime I think is is the most important thing you can do do you listen to podcasts when you're out running or music what do you do you normally take your phone yeah. with you depends what mood I'm in if I listen to podcasts they'd like really techie scientific ones so I, I I'm my, obviously my hero is the grandfather of biohacking Dave Asprey who does bulletproof radio yeah uh, I also listen to Peter Atia, who is a, an American researcher, commentator, and medical doctor. And so if I'm trying to sort of take in sort of fairly complex ideas or facts, I'll occasionally listen to those on a run. Mm. But most of the time, I just try and listen to, you know, rock anthems that can push me over Keep the, you up the hill. Yeah. <laughs> and final question, what have you learned about yourself from your phone, digital and tech habits over the years, from your time as an MP through to now, what have you uh, learned? Well, what I've learned to do with tech is manage information workflow. It's taken me 20 years to get there, but I feel like I'm in good shape on that now. I kind of find a way of traversing through the ocean of information we're all in to get to the stuff that really interests me and inspires me and allows my curiosity to be satisfied. Excellent. I love that. So thank you very much. Thank you. That was good. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.